You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ian Hoskins, North Sydney Council's historian. Our writer today is Peter Fitzsullivan. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Who is here to talk about his latest book, The Opera House. We are gathered on Cameragle land that was part of the Australian East Coast taken for King George without treaty or compensation, first by James Cook in 1770, then by Arthur Phillip in 1788, when half the continent was declared British territory. More specifically, Cameragle country entered the Sydney property market in 1794 when 30 acres at Kirribilli was granted to Samuel Lightfoot, again without treaty or compensation. Peter Fitzsimons I'm sure is familiar to many, if not all of you. He has spoken at Stanton many times. He represented... <laughs> There's someone else broadcasting there. Um, he represented Australia in Rugby Union as a Wallaby in 1989 and 1990. He is currently the chair of the Australian Republic movement. <laughs> Peter is, of course, a writer and has authored and co-authored 40 books. That's what I counted. Um, he is also a journalist, of course, with a regular column in the Sydney Morning Herald, in which his commentary on sport ranges far beyond score sheets and leaderboards to issues of morality. I've been enjoying his open letters to Greg Norman, questioning his fellow Australians' championing of plans for a Saudi-backed rival golf tour on the basis that such a competition would lend credibility to a dynasty that conducts public executions, oppresses women and dismembers its critics. Hear, hear. I've been here for nearly 20 years, so when I read through any book or article, my eye automatically falls upon references to North Sydney. And so it was with the Opera House. Ron Gilling, president of the Royal Australian Institute of Architects, had an office here, as did many notable architects in the post-war years. In 1965, grilling was grilled over lunch, so to speak, by Davis Hughes, the Minister for Public Works, as the latter geared up to dismiss Jorn Utzen as the architect in charge of the Opera House project. Although I looked at our records and I, only, I could only find a city address for Jocelyn and Gilling, um, so if you have a North Sydney address, I'd love to hear it. And Ted Mack gets a mention. Before he moved to Neutral Bay, where he got involved in local government, then state and federal politics, Ted was one of many young architects employed by the government, and in 1966, he organised a petition signed by himself and 74 colleagues, arguing that Jorn Utzen was, quote, the only architect technically and ethically able to complete the Opera House. Oop. The missive was addressed to Davis Hughes, the Minister for Public Works, and delivered to Hughes by Ted himself. And on the way out... <laughs> i get this glove on. Perhaps I won't worry about that. Just use one. On the way out... Ted pulled that off the door, <laughs> as is his want. And it came to us with Ted Mack's archive after his death in 2018, along with several printed copies of a, printed, of a poster over there, which was another petition from the architects of 17 countries, Walter Gropius, Alva Alto and Richard Neuter among them. This is classic. The State Library has a copy of that, and we've got 10 copies of it, thanks to, thanks to Ted. Um, 
we do have legal possession of the posters, but I'm not sure about the plaque because it really wasn't Ted's to give as he pulled it off the door. Um, if there's any lawyers out there, maybe you can clarify that. But thank you anyway, Ted Mack. So that's in our, in our archive. I'll leave it to the author of the Opera House to say more. Please join with me in switching your phones to silent and welcoming Peter Fitzsimons. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction and thank you all for turning up. When I talk about this in the Sydney Morning Herald, I'll say it was lovely to speak to 400 people at the uh, at, at North Sydney Library. The other, the other local that's mentioned in the book is me. Um, I'm a local. I live at uh, just the border of uh, Neutral Bay and uh, Cremorne. And that, uh, that the, the road that goes down to the ferry, the Cremorne Wharf Ferry, what's that road? Not Milson Road? Is it Milson Road? I drive that every day, and I've been driving it every day for 25 years, not because I've got anything down at Cremorne Wharf other than the Opera House. And I look at that thing, and I've looked at that thing for, for 25 years, and I gaze across the waters of Sydney Harbour, and my question is always the same. Where did that thing come from? And the theme of the book, and I wanted to call this, I'm going to use a rhyming word, because the real word's too, too rude, but I pushed to the publisher, I said, I want to call this book The Sydney Opera House, comma, where the ruck did that thing come from anyway? <laughs> because you look at it and you think about it, that if you think of 1950s Australia, 1950s Sydney, we were known as Manchester by the sea. We were pretty much the dullest people on earth. And the fact, it's true, it's true. We were a very comfortable, very, very, not monosyllabic, but monoculture, if I can put it like that. And somehow or other, a scale model of the Sydney Opera House was put on a round table in front of 16 white men of the New South Wales Cabinet, men who lived their lives behind a white picket fence, ate meat and three veg every day of their lives, went to church on Sundays, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just this absolutely standard, down the mainstream lives, and they looked at this scale model and said, yeah, yeah, I reckon we can build that bastard. What? Where did that come from? How did this happen? And so that's the theme of the book, and when I put one of my researchers on it uh, to to go into it, I was stunned by how good the stories are. Many of you who know my other books will appreciate that the way I like to write is not in the classic historical fashion of then they and then they and then they and then they. I want, when I started out writing, I, uh, I wanted people, I wanted to be the narrator at the campfire. Everybody gather in close. It was a dark and stormy night. And the wind blew. And I don't want that anymore. I, I want it to be, about 20 years ago I changed the way I wrote, I don't want people to be reading my books around the narrator at the campfire, I want them to be there on the dark and stormy night. And the lightning, thunder and the thunder and they're there and you're in the middle of it. And so when I do, uh, do books, now I want colour and movement, I want thunder and lightning, I want staggering stories. And so that's where the Opera House book came from, and they are staggering stories. And to go back to the late 1940s, I had no idea about the influence of the ABC on the formation of the Sydney Opera House. In the 1930s, that was a really big deal. The ABC 
and symphony orchestras broadcast across the land. And after the war was over and people wanted to get back to normal ways of life, it, they, they had this fellow by the name of Eugene Goosen, who was a European, a famous European conductor. And he came, and there's a probably apocryphal story, but he arrives in 1947. He has the Sydney Symphony Orchestra form up in front of him at the Sydney Town Hall. And he says, all right, let's, let's start with Brahms' fifth. And they begin, and then he says, stop, says, let us start at the beginning. And he grabs, a, grabs an instrument and says, this is a violin. Boom, boom. The point being that our orchestra may not necessarily have been quite up to speed then, but he was brilliant. And he made, he made them perform. They performed very well. They're very popular with the ABC. And he became so popular and he was so sophisticated. A European, can you imagine, living among us humble provincial folk? And he became so popular that he became a man of influence. And he was the one that said to Joe Carl, and we know Joe Carl, completely forgotten to history now, apart from the Carl Expressway, which is always blocked uh, when you need to get on it, said to Joe Carl, we need, we need an opera house. And Joe Carl, to his amazement, said, well, you're probably right. And so Joe Carl uh, then launches this competition. Meanwhile, Eugene Goosen, who was this most respectable man and revered with his wife, and they lived up at Warunga, and unbeknownst to anybody, Eugene Goosen had what turned into the great scandal of his time that he was at a bookshop in Glebe and he sees this artwork and he starts to, uh, starts to open it and there's bare breasts and there's witches and there's devils and there's covens and there's gargoyles. And he looks around and he buys it and he goes and who did this? And it was a, a woman called Roy Norton who was known as the Witch of King's Cross, who came from the very unlikely place of Linfield, <laughs> of all places. I think she had been educated at Roseville Ladies' College. And so he, he makes contact with her and he knocks on the door. She welcomes him in and there's incense and there's images of devil on the wall. And he becomes involved in this fairly minor witches' cult, devil worship, cult, sexual cult, call it whatever you will, and engages in stuff that these days on the internet, I'm told, would not raise an eyebrow. Just fairly standard brand, minor sexual deviation, whatever you want to call it, but unbeknownst to anybody, he goes to, he goes to London, he buys some sexual paraphernalia with various images, and he comes back through Sydney Airport, he's taken aside, they search his luggage, he's arrested that poor bastard. You know, his whole life destroyed. And that was the first of those stories. Meantime, they launched the competition and there's 232 submissions that come in from all over the world. The greatest architects in the world, including this fellow, Jörn Utzen from Denmark, and who specialised in one particular thing, not building buildings, but winning architectural building competitions. And he'd won seven of them, not a single one of them had been, had they won, had he won and built. He'd won seven, but not one had been built, and he'd never worked on a project with more than 30 people, you know, like 30 people involved, minor projects. But he puts in his submission, 232 come in from all over the world. They have an international judging panel, including a fellow by the name of Eero Saarinen, who's a Finnish-American uh, architect, and he swans in, I think it was January of 1957, he swans in, he's there four days later, the other three have gone through the 232 submissions, and they've narrowed it down to ten possible finalists. He has a look, and says, well, it's not that one, it's not that one, not that one. Gets through a ten, well, says, not, not any of those, Where's, where, where, are there any more? There's a pile of 222 over there. So, he goes through, and he goes through, three hours later, he gets 
to number 218. And he immediately pulls it out and he says, there, there, gentlemen, is your Sydney Opera House. And they look at it and said, well, I've never seen anything like it. We rejected it immediately. We don't even know if the thing can stand up. Stay with me. And he gets them down to Benelong Point and he gets them in a dinghy. Why do you want us to get in the dinghy? Get in the dinghy. He personally rows out 200, get up the back. Why do we get, get up the back. So they get up the back and he pulls out a drawing of the Sydney Opera House and says, look at this, think about this. What would it be like to have this structure on the shores of, of Sydney Harbour? And immediately the light goes on, he fights for it, and to the, to the great credit of Joe Carl, and Joe Carl, the Premier of the time, his idea of a good time on a Saturday night was Wentworth Park, dogs so munching on a sausage sandwich. He was not, if I may say, like me, I'm not an artistic person, I'm not a musical person, I'm not a theatrical, none of those things. But Joe Carl said, well, yeah, we're going to build it. We are going to build it. So he backs him from the start. When they put up the, uh, the winning, they, he announced the winning uh, entry at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And it was another local, I think a local resident, Harry Seidler, who was a junior up-and-coming, the late great Harry Seidler, who was an up-and-coming brilliant architect, and he'd been shortlisted in the top five. He took one look at what Jörn Utzon had come up with and he immediately said to the newspapers, the judges must be congratulated on their genius and foresight and, the, and, and in picking this, it's much better than mine. Well done, congratulations. Not everybody felt the same. Uh, the Daily Mirror said it looks like the toenail clippings are from a giant albino dog, <laughs> which was one of the kinder comments. Joe Carl was attacked at the very idea of building an opera house. Why are you doing this for the elite? He said, because it's not for the elite. This is for the workers. This is not going to be for ladies in mink coats and men with bow ties. This will be for waitresses and carpenters and unemployed, it'll be for everybody. There's no reason why the people of Sydney and New South Wales shouldn't have the absolute finest things in life. So Jorn Utzon was contacted and they said, you've won and not only have you won, we want you to, to build it. You, you what? I've got to build it. So the, he was invited to, be, to begin and famously when they said, well, what are the curves? You know, we've got to, to draw these shells. How thick are they? What, what, what's the curve? And he famously, because the engineers wanted to know, you can't just build it like that. They didn't even know if it could stand. Jornutsen got a, uh, a uh, plastic ruler and he bent it and he went, Shh, that curve, that, that's the way to do it. Well, that's not strong enough. And they, for the next five years, they weren't sure if it was going to be three inches thick or six feet thick or whatever it was. And in, it turned out that it was Jorn Utzon himself who came up with the solution, which was called the spherical solution, that each one of those shells up could be part of an imaginary sphere, an exact sphere which would give it the greatest strength, the greatest capacity for the pieces, the individual pieces to be reproduced. And that sphere would have a radius from memory of 75.1 metres. From that, it all started to come good uh, in 1961. Uh, the great American black activist, black American activist Paul Robeson came to town and he said, I want to sing for the workers. So he goes down to the Sydney Opera House and he sings for the workers Old Man River as they all crowd in. And there was one interloper, at least one interloper there who wasn't a worker on the, uh, on the, on the building site. He was an office worker who'd got the, who heard that Paul Robeson was in town who, who caught the bus down George Street and walked across to Circular Quay in his lunch hour to get to Benelong Point. 
He was 16 years old. His name was Paul Keating. And who listened to that? But it was not. Right? People say the first performance had been a long point. In fact, there was a far stronger one where in... Uh, back in 1790. So you'll appreciate that Captain Philip came in 1788, outrageously, among other things, kidnapped two Indigenous men, one of whom was Benelong, became known as Benelong. But Benelong learnt English, befriended Philip, Philip befriended him one way or t'other. And it was Benelong who had a cottage built on, built on that point, a tidal island, I think they called it, and he was the one that invited Philip to come down with the officers, whereupon they did a corroboree. And in black-white relations, in the highly troubled indigenous past that we have in this nation, and mostly white atrocities to the blacks, but in part of that was they did a corroboree, and for the white men there, as they saw the indigenous men uh, doing this stylized performance, chanting the same thing, moving in the same way, it was the first moment of wow, these people are doing... It's almost like us. I mean, this is almost like they rehearsed it, but it was a moment of understanding of sophistication, that this is a cultured, sophisticated people, a breakthrough in that field. To go back to 1962-63, after four or five years of, of construction, they say to Ewan Utzon with his draftspeople, well, you've got to come from Holland. We need you on site. Hence one of my favourite stories out of the whole thing, which is where... They are, Utzon's flying in with his family. In fact, the, before I get to that point, I'll say the first time after Utzon wins, he flies, I think it was early 1958, and he flies into Sydney to have a look at Benelong Point for the first time, to look around. He's seen the charts, but this is his first time on site. He goes to see Joe Carl, and he says to Joe Carl, Premier, this is just wonderful. This is everything I possibly imagined. Thank you so much for backing me. I've only got one problem. What's that, Mr Utzon? Well... The working wharves on the western foreshore. It's, we can't really have an opera house where we've got fisher boats and so forth carrying on just on the western shore. And Joe Carl, Premier Joe Carl, says, uh, Just a moment, Mr. Woodson, just a moment, please. Uh, Dorothy, could you just get me the Maritime Authority, please? Yes, uh, uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, Maritime, yes, this is Premier, Premier Carl. Listen, all those western wharves on the western foreshore, the foreshore uh, working wharves on the western foreshore, yeah, look, they'll have to be moved. Yeah, no, I want them gone by Christmas. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, Mr. Woodson, you were going on. And Woodson had the support of this extraordinary politician who, meantime, had launched the Opera House Lottery. To, to finance it. He knew that Australians weren't fussed on op operettas, but they were fussed on gambling. So by bringing the two together, we'll get them involved in gambling, we'll do this. And Woodson, so flies with his family in 62, 63, he's in the plane, he's uh, about two hours out of Sydney when he sees his New South Wales government is flying him economy, uh, as you do, and he sees up the front they're being handed out socks because they're 20,000 feet above the sea and it's very cold. And he says to the what was then the hostess we'd call flight attendant, uh, excuse me, excuse me, could I have some socks for my family? And they said, well, no, no, you can't. Socks are for first-class passengers. No, absolutely not. An hour later, the same flight attendant comes back and says, are you Jorn are Utzon from uh, the architect from Holland, uh, from Denmark? Uh, well, y y yes, I am. He said, we've just had uh, Sydney on the radio and uh, the message has been passed that the Queen of England is in Sydney with the Royal Yacht Britannia, moored just off Circular Quay, and she'd like to know if you would like to join her for lunch um, <laughs> after you land. And he says, oh, yes, yes, thank you. That would, that would be very nice. Thank you. And she replied and says, yeah, and would you like some socks? <laughs> so he lands, meantime, the horrible story to go with the sexual scandal... 
is that they were doing the Opera House Lottery and these were the days of innocence in Australia. We didn't do kidnappings, we didn't do assassinations. We might have done the odd murder here and there but we weren't with this sort of stuff. You just sent your kids to school and the sun was always shining. And if somebody won £100,000, you put them on the front page of the paper and said, here's Fred and Wilma Flintstone and they live in Nine Wickham Road and they've just won £100,000. The eighth time they did it, it was the Thorne family from Bondi living at 8 Edward Street. Here they are, a lovely wife, lovely husband, three lovely children and here's the youngest, number eight-year-old Graham and they've won £100,000. They announced it on the Tuesday. On the Friday, they sent their boy off to school 30 minutes later, Mrs Thorne gets the phone call saying, I've got your boy, I want £25,000 or you'll never see him again. And lights, camera, action, police, helicopters, dog squads, everything. And for after a month, nothing had turned up until some boys were playing. When you come down the spit bridge and you're heading north, I don't know why you do that if you live here, but if you are heading north over there on the left there's a parade and some boys were playing near a cave and they found tragically the corpse of the eight-year-old boy and thus began an extraordinary forensic episode, one of the first forensic investigations in, in Sydney's life, in the, in the life of Australia and this particularly persistent policeman just didn't give up and he got the blanket in which the body was wrapped, took it to Sydney University, they analysed it under the microscope and they worked out two kinds of eucalyptus, a particular type of grass, pink mortar and the colour of the bricks. So he then goes to uh, where the body was found. In fact, yes, dot three, carry one, subtract two, yes. So they found it and they, they'd found other stuff at the wake, on the Wakehurst Parkway, some of the stuff that the boy had been carrying. The briefcase was found on the Wakehurst Parkway. The body was found at Seaforth. He goes to the nearest post office, which is at Balgala, and he says, there's a drawing, he says, or pa a painting, if you like, photograph, I'm looking for a house like this and there'll be two cypress trees, one like this, one like that, grass like this, there'll be the bricks look this colour, there's a certain kind of mud and there's pink mortar. Anybody like this? Nothing. And a month later, everybody else has given up and this guy's still going and he's going to see one of the leads in Seaforth and while he's there, the postman pulls up. He says, did my mate Jacko get a hold of you? No, why? Oh, look, he thinks he knows uh, which house it is. They contact Jacko. Jacko did know which house it was. They found the murderer and he was at that point on his way back to Europe and he was on a, on a cruiser and when he got off at uh, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, they arrested him brought him back and he spent the rest of his life, mercifully short life, in Goulburn Jail. Strangely enough, became, I think, the conductor of the orchestra, which is a weird, the Goulburn Prisoner Orchestra. Um, that was one of the many stories. Then there was the falling out. So Askin, Robert Askin, uh, became the Premier, I think it was March of 1965. Part of his platform was, oh, I'll, get, I'll bring the op, this is crazy, it was meant to take 18 months, we've been going for seven years, we've blown out the budget by a factor of seven, we'll, we'll bring it in on time, we'll, we'll rein them all in and we will uh, bring it in on a much tighter budget. They won the election and suddenly, for Utsun, the wind had changed. Suddenly there was a huge pressure from the government to, 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 keep this, to get this moving faster and for Utsun, was, I might say, a little bit like my wife. I am, in many of the things that I do, close enough to good enough. Just get the damn thing done. She wants to do things absolutely right. And Fordson, who'd come up with this masterpiece, 
absolute masterpiece. He didn't want to be hurried and he didn't care how much it cost and he didn't care how long it took. He wanted to maintain complete control. He was Rembrandt and he really was Rembrandt. But perhaps the same genius brain that could conceive of such a thing as that was not necessarily the same brain required to run a huge array of people. There are over a thousand rooms in that opera house. I would have said 27, something like that. I would have something like that, but there's over a thousand. The complexity of running the wiring, of getting the finish on the ceilings, on the floors, the theatres, getting the, the, the theatres to get acoustically strong together with the, the right number of people that, that were needed for operas and plays. The, ready. the complexity was extraordinary. He was working when Utzon resigned in 1966, he was working with no more, coming and going, a dozen, a dozen draftspeople. And they replaced him with three, three other architects. And by the time they'd finished, seven years later, there were 118 draftspeople, which was a fair indication of the extraordinary complexity involved in coming up with this amazing thing. And one of the, one of the people that... Uh, one of the principal architect that took it over was a brilliant young Sydney architect from Sydney University, also a local, Peter Hall, uh, living just there in North Sydney. Well, here in North Sydney. And he, he didn't want to do it. He met his second wife at a... He'd signed a thing saying, Utzon only. And he met his second wife at, an, at, an anti, at a pro-Utzon rally and saying nobody should, uh, nobody should take this over. This is Rembrandt. You can't take over the work of another architect. And in the end, they said to him, we want you. Why you? Because if you don't do it, we're going to be left with this white cave on the shores of Sydney Harbour. Somebody has to finish it. And he thought, again, it would be no more than 18 months, not realising the complexity of it and that it would be seven years. He had uh, three children, the youngest, uh, four children, the youngest of whom uh, doesn't live too far from here. She came to see me at my request. We had a cup of tea. She'd just been walking around Kirribilli Point, and I said to her, "Gee, that must, you know, when you when you see S Sydney Opera House across the waters from Kirribilli, and you know that your father was the one that was the principal one to finish it, that must give you enormous satisfaction." She says, "No, it made me sad. Makes me sad. Why is that? Because I see a destroyed life." And it pretty much was. This brilliant young architect was snubbed by the community, the architectural community, because he'd taken on somebody else's work. They turned their back on him. He had a very difficult life thereafter, turned to grog. He was already on a bit of grog, but, you know, he did, it did not finish happily, and he died in his early 60s, not destitute, but uh, three postcodes north of destitute. Very, very difficult. And yet... Uh, and I dedicated my book to him among with Utzon and Joe Carl. Who, I mean, for me, the three ones that are most responsible for the glory of what we have at Sydney Harbour, besides Sydney Harbour, in that stunning opera house, is indeed uh, Joe Carl, well, Utzon first of all, but Joe Carl and Peter Hall. And just to finish, uh, before I take your questions, again, a lot of people here will remember Sydney in the 1970s. And you remember the Hilton Hotel, what a big deal it was to be, have the, the Hilton Hotel, which was the only major hotel in town. And you'll remember that uh, after attending the theatre, you could go up those escalators, you'd turn left and we could get... There was a cafe that was open at 11pm at night and you could order 
apple strudel and cappuccino. And it was about the swishest thing we'd ever seen. And I remember going there in the early 1980s as a university student. This is pretty swish. This is pretty cosmopolitan. And then, in 1982, they opened the Regent. Do you remember what a big deal that was? The Sydney Regent, it's now the Sydney Four Seasons, and we looked at it and we went, that is just about the grandest building we've ever seen. Forget the Hilton, look at this. Now, when you are crossing Sydney Harbour this afternoon or sometime in the next week, have a look at that Regent. It looks, it was opened in 1982, with the greatest respect, it looks like a wet Wednesday afternoon. It just, it hasn't aged. You just look at it, it's so bland. And now look at the Sydney Opera House. This thing, well, how did that thing come from anyway? This thing looks like a sparkling Sunday morning in the year 2525, and it will never age. It is a masterpiece. It is absolutely extraordinary. And the, and the quote that I put on the cover of the book is the one I love most. Louis Kahn, who was an American architect, said, the sun did not know how beautiful, did not know how beautiful its light was until it shone on the, on the Sydney Opera House. Amen to that. Thank you for your attention. I welcome any questions you may have. I can repeat it. Let's go. Any questions? Yes, sir. You've got. You look. You're looking meaningfully at me. You've just taken off your mask. Go on. Uh, what political party was Labor, Labor, and that was one of the interesting things that he was absolute working class Irish Catholic, and in fact, one of his daughters was a nun, and she was the she was the one in the family that was strongest against her father putting money towards that and said to him, why are we doing this? Stop doing this. We need this money for the poor and the rest. And not an unreasonable point. And he, and he was the one that said, because I'm doing it for the workers, I'm doing it for the people. And one of the, my favourite quotes growing up, and doing this book reminded me of it, Oscar Wilde, when he was a student at Oxford University in the late 1870s, I think, said, every day I find it harder and harder to live up to my blue china. The theme being that, you know, if a man's going to own China as beautiful as this blue China, then I've got to live a life worthy of it. And in many ways, that Sydney Opera House, the inspiration for Utzon was a Swedish architect who, in the early 1900s, got the commission to do the, I think it was the Stockholm Town Hall. And instead of doing a standard brand building the way it had been done for 400 years. He said, we don't have to do it like that. Yes, it's been done like that with these old materials for the last 400 years, but we're not doing it like that. We're going to do it with new materials, new techniques. We're going to let in light. We're going to have insulation. We're going to open it up. And that building is credited, I think it was the people that started IKEA, credited that building, saying we can do things in new ways. And Sydney Opera House, with that as an inspiration, it changed the city, it changed the state, it changed the image of our country. And the thing is, if we're going to have a performance space that magnificent, well, we better come up with our own ballet, we better come up with our own theatre, we better fill it with absolutely fine, fantastic stuff. And we have. We've risen to the occasion. Any more questions? Yes, go on. I was going to ask, um, roughly how much did it end up costing and 
Yes, the, op the, the, the theme of the Opera House Lottery was we're not going to take money out of general revenue. We've got a certain amount for roads, we've got a certain amount for schools, we've got a certain amount for hospitals, and so we are not going to take any of that. It'll come from the people's gambling. And I think from memory it was like one pound, it used to be one pound to buy a, buy a ticket, and then when the Opera House, and you'd win 10,000, the Opera House Lottery was the grand scheme. You have to pay 10 pounds, but you could win a hundred thousand pounds, and again, from memory, I think it was three million dollars uh, when you when you use the old money um, and you put it in imperial. It was something like three million dollars was projected, and ended up costing a hundred and twenty million. And yet now, the value is absolutely incalculable. Incalculable. Yes. Uh, double question hmm. goes back to sixty-seven to sixty-nine when I was. Yep. 1798. The short answer is Ron. Yes, I remember that. It's funny. I was thinking as soon as you said Ron Sharp, I think I know that name, and then I think yes, he was the one with the organ, and there was terrible trouble with, and there still are, and the, with the acoustics. And I think from memory, Ron Sharp lived a long life. That was his great, that was his great masterpiece. But there was hell on earth to have it installed. And as for the acoustic donuts, again. I, when I go to the Opera House, I never seem to have a problem with the acoustics. A lot of the performance, there has been a lot of criticism, saying it's just, you're, you're in a barn. It's, it, the acoustics don't actually work. I am not qualified to say. I know there's been criticism about the acoustics, but I ignore it, because I just love the Opera House. Yes? Is that right? There you go. You, you were nodding meaningfully every time I spoke. Is that because you're an architect? No, no, I'm actually Uh-huh. Yeah, and was and the renovation work was run by that lovely man who dropped out of a heart attack about a year or two ago. I was with him on the on the board of Sydney. Many different projects, but one of the ones that's been going on for a while now is the, the concert hall. Right. Uh, because exactly what you were saying, the acoustics because yeah. they got kicked off before the internals of it all. Yeah. But, um, they never got to, down to his level or set yeah. right. that he originally set. So a lot of the work they've been getting it ready for its fiftieth birthday yeah. next year. Is to improve that, um, and the concert hall has been going through a massive renovation to get it to the acoustic level. And and are the acoustics? I mean, at one point, when they thought they had the acoustics right, a steamer was passing the opera house and sounded its horn, and the the they were doing a test, and the, and the whole everything started to shake, and they went, "We got a lot of we got a lot of work so to do here." What they actually did was to make the whole stage float by itself, right. any vibration caused by the orchestra. Which brings to mind one of the other extraordinary things about Utzon. He left in February of 1966, never to return. And at one point he considered maybe what he should do was fly back into Sydney, dress as a woman. So No, no, that was part of his plan, to be incognito and to mix and mingle and walk around his masterpiece, but he, he never got to it. And in, when, in late 99, when we were about to click over into the millennium, the, my editor-in-chief at the Sydney Morning Herald, Robert Whitehead, contacted him and said, here's the plan, we'll fly you first class 
into Sydney. We'll put you up in a hotel at Botany Bay. We will put you in a boat that will take you around. And as the first rays of the new dawn of the new millennium hit the Sydney Opera House, we're going to take you in the boat up, the up through the heads of Sydney Harbour so you will see it in all its glory while we film. What do you say? Answer, no, never. And what a, what a, what a tragedy. You can you imagine Michelangelo finishing the Sistine Chapel, turning blind before it was finished and never seeing his absolute masterwork? No, he died, I think it was 2013, and they dimmed the lights on the Opera House. And, and one, some, one other thing, just given that we're, we're lo a lot of locals here, I also credit for the Opera House the Harbour Bridge because when there were the naysayers, if I may say at the Herald, I led the charge against the stadiums. For me, absolutely insane to knock down 30-year-old stadiums and put a billion dollars to it when I happened to know that Bomaderry High had had a leak in the roof for 50 years. But there were people like me who, when the idea of, you know, Opera House putting money towards that, uh, they, were, they were absolutely dead set against it. I'd, I'd like to think, however, that had I been around at the time, I would have recognised that arts is always underdone. There's always money for sport. You know, absolutely nothing is too good for sport, but the theatre has been totally underdone. Um, and, yeah, so he died, died uh, yeah, 2011, 2013. And one nice thing, a measure of the generosity of spirit of Woodson, his great antagonist was Sir Davis Hughes, who was the Minister for Public Works, who was the one that took it over for, from Askin and said, all right, I'm going to get the job done. And he was the one, when Woodson resigned, he never thought they'd accept it, but he, so he handed, handed his resignation as a manoeuvre, thinking they'd say, oh, Mr Woodson, Mr Woodson, please. And in fact, Davis Hughes practically said, taxi, get this man to the airport without delay. And, and so he was never able to come back. And so Davis Hughes has always been portrayed as an ogre and a barbarian with no understanding. And there's, you know, maybe a certain bit of truth in that. On the other hand, as Woodson himself said, when, Utsen, when Davis Hughes died in 2001, it was... Woodson contacted Lady Hughes, a message, and passed a message to Lady Hughes, which said, look, you know, my deepest condolences on the passing and the death of your husband. Without him, it never would have been finished. And I, I certainly wouldn't have put a dedication to Davis Hughes um, in the beginning of the book, but to a certain extent, the, it did have to be finished. It couldn't just go on and on and on, and it was finished. And it may be slightly imperfect, but it's as close to perfect as we can get. Uh, two more questions, and let's see if we can set a Guinness Book of Records for signing books. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the engineers, Ovarit, was the the Danish uh, English English Danish one of those two um, of Danish heritage, but living in England. He was the brilliant engineer who saw the design, contacted contacted. Uh, Hudson and said, you're going, to need, you're going to need help to build this. This is my field. And it was his field. And Ovarup Engineers, Proprietary Limited, took it on. And they were very close. They were like mentor and mentee. And they were like brothers. And they, 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 he'd go and visit Hudson. And he, he'd play songs on the piano for his children, uh, for Hudson's children. And they have happy memories of him. And yet, and yet, as the problems piled up, it was there was a huge tension between them. And after the resignation, uh, it was Arab who wrote to him and said, basically, what are you doing? This is insane. 
it needs you, we need you, don't, you know, you've got to come back. And there was all this bring backwards and stuff. But in the end, the sad thing is, from being thick as thieves up until the early 60s, after they fell out circa 1966, uh, I think it was 78, 1978, that was the first time they laid eyes on each other again. Uh, they were both being honoured by some architectural awards in London and they shook hands and moved off. And then at one point there was an intermediary that was close to both Arup and close to Utsun. And with Arup, Arup was in, was in Copenhagen and the intermediary was there and went to see Utsun and said, oh, Arup's, you know, three miles away, can I go and get him and can we have... A... And the answer was no. And so they, they'd fallen out, which was, you know... And it's just one of the, that was one of the great pities of the Opera House. And it, it, it is, you know, it's got a lot of sadness in the saga. But in the end, we've got this thing. And you think of the image of Australia prior to that was kangaroos, Ayers Rock, as it was then known, the sheep, and, and uh, boomerangs, all of which are wonderful, admirable things. But after that... I mean, who, would any of us trade it for the Eiffel Tower? Would any of us trade it for the Empire State Building? I mean, I wouldn't let the Empire State Building tie the shoelaces of the Sydney Opera House. It's just this extraordinary thing. And I mentioned this yesterday, but I'll say it again. When I find myself starting to ramble, I like to do what the Americans did in Vietnam. I declare victory and leave. I'll be up the back signing books. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.